Well, yesterday, my son Sam and I went to the Portland Rock Gym. Sam is not only an excellent climber, you should know, but he's a great coach. Uh, whatever level there is below beginner, that's where I'm at. And yet, by the end of our time together, Sam had me climbing some pretty tricky walls, uh, at least tricky for me. What made Sam such a good coach, as I observed what he was doing, is he would give me verbal instructions. He's like, okay, Dad, this is how you're going to go up the wall. And then he would demonstrate for me with his actions. He would show me the footwork and the movements himself. As I thought about what Sam was doing, I couldn't help but think of our text this morning. And I thought, what the church needs is more people like Sam. Uh, People whose talk matches, or whose walk matches their talk. Uh, People whose good lives are consistent with the good teaching, the good message that we have here in Scripture, whose words are consistent consistent with their actions. You know, it was Frederick Douglass who was deeply troubled by the Christianity of America, and he said this, Between the Christianity of the land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Douglas obviously observed that in the 19th century. I wonder what he would say today. Is our Christianity consistent with Christ's teaching today? Have things gotten better since the day in our country when professing Christians owned slaves? What about here in our church, here in Portland, Oregon? How are we doing? Are we practicing what we preach? Finally, what about you? Is your life consistent with the teaching of the gospel? Well, the Apostle Paul was concerned that right teaching lead to right living. As early as the first century, when the Christian movement was just getting off the ground, He wrote a little letter to his protege, Titus. And we're going to go back in time to the first century and consider what we have today from God's word. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. You can find it in the Pew Bibles provided on page 1058, 1058. We covered Titus 1 on authentic leaders back on February 27th and here today, a month later. We are picking things up in chapter 2 as we consider affirming lives, lives that affirm the truth of the gospel. And here's my main point for us this morning as you're turning to Titus chapter 2. Make the good news look good again. Make the good news look good again. My prayer for us this morning is that our lives would make the gospel attractive and a compelling witness to the watching world. We do this by living good lives that match up or are consistent with the good news. So I have two simple points for us this morning. One, good lives. Two, good news. Good lives, good news. Listen as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as we consider first, good lives. But you... 
that's Titus, are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Here are the things. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, Encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Well, as we considered a month ago, Paul left Titus in Crete to finish some unfinished business, uh, largely appointing elders in every town. Paul tells Titus godly leaders are needed here in these first century churches because there are some false teachers who have come in who are destroying whole households. What characterizes these false teachers? You can just look back at chapter 1, verse 16. These false teachers, they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. So in contrast to these household destroyers, Paul commands Titus, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. That's chapter 2, verse 1. And there are two things consistent with sound teaching that Paul seems to emphasize because they appear repeatedly. And this is what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on self-control and submission here in the first point. Self-control and submission. The reason why I've chosen to devote our time to those two characteristics of a good life is because of how fundamental they are to all the other good works mentioned here in verses 1 through 10. Christ-centered self-control and submission make the good news look good. They are the Christ-like qualities that are foundational to good Christ-like lives. So let's get started with self-control. It's not merely the elders who need to be self-controlled. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 8, elders were to be self-controlled. But older men, did you notice that? Chapter 2, verse 2. And then younger women, chapter 2, verse 4. And younger men, chapter 2, verse 6. You might think, well, I guess the older women don't need to be self-controlled. They've already got that down. No, I don't think so. Self-control is implied for the older women as well, because it says in chapter 2, verse 3, in the same way. So following up on what Paul had told the older men. I do think, just kind of as an aside, that it's telling that the younger women get six things to work on in verses four and five, or six things that should characterize them, whereas the younger men get just one. Uh, Apparently, even in the first century, young men weren't great multitaskers. So young men of Hinson, you know, nothing has changed in 20 centuries. You have one job, self-control, verse six. So as I said, as I said earlier, self-control is necessary for all the other good works mentioned in these verses. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to me 
that the world, the flesh, and the devil would come at us hard uh, when we are seeking to be self-controlled. Older men, the world is trying to form you into its mold. You might be concerned about the younger generation, rightfully so, but be careful. The world is trying to form you into its mold as you watch the news, read articles online, watch your retirement accounts. Be careful. Be self-controlled. Older women, self-control can be difficult as you look to worldly things, maybe as an escape from the hardships in life. Married women, Satan is trying to distract you from loving your husbands and your children. Your flesh will cry out, what about me? When is anybody going to serve me? As you seek to give yourself to your husband and children. Single women and men, are you giving into your lusts and passions? Do you vent in your speech when you get frustrated with where the Lord has put you in life? Kids, I think there's application for you here too. God is calling you too to exercise self-control. So as you think about even just this last week, maybe you found it difficult to obey your parents without complaining or arguing or doing what they asked you to the first time. Friends, we all struggle with self-control. We're all on that same level playing field. And I think the reason we struggle with it so much is because we are not content with what the Lord, who the Lord is for us and what he has given us. So we regularly find ourselves giving, depending on escapes from reality, uh, dopamine hits from our devices. We dull and heighten our senses with alcohol, sugar, caffeine, or food. We struggle with self-control, as I mentioned, in our speech. You know, we all have those safe family members who won't judge us or friends who won't judge us. And we unload how we really feel to them, kind of letting it all hang out as we complain maybe about our job, our family, or a difficult situation. You know, I'll just offer one small example from my own life. I struggle with greed. And I like to see my bank account balances going up. And I had an app on my phone that showed me all my accounts. And I found myself checking that app on a daily basis, sometimes more than once a day. I had very little self-control saying no to checking that app. And I thought, you know, I'd rationalize it. Well, it's not sinful. I'm trying to be a good steward, trying to manage my, my finances well. Well, a few months ago, I came under conviction that I need to delete that app because it was keeping me from being present, even sometimes with my family and with the Lord. Friends, self-control is the soil in which a love for God and neighbor grows. Just as we opened up the service by confessing the great commandments, if you don't have self-control, you won't be able to do the greatest commandment of loving God and loving neighbor. And the Lord showed me in a very small way that by deleting that app, my greed's not going to go away. But the Lord showed me that one way I can exercise self-control is by simply not feeding the greed with that app. You know, writing about self-control in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, Ed Welch shared this. I found it really helpful. It is one thing to make a resolution which often fails. 
It is something completely different to repent, diligently seek counsel, and in concert with others, develop a plan that is concrete and Christ-centered. Friends, I think the Lord is calling you right now to repent of your lack of self-control in an area, in your heart, to repent, to make a note of that area where you struggle in self-control, even now, maybe to write it down or to make a mental note of it, and then take some time this week to bring it into the light with a brother or sister. You know, if, if Paul thought that this was a character quality worth mentioning several times, like just right in the first couple chapters of Titus and all throughout the New Testament, it must be an important way of not just self-improvement, like feeling better about ourselves, but commending the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We prove that God is powerful and worth it when we say no to the things that our minds and our hearts are so often tempted to go after. And the reputation of Jesus is at stake. Is that how you think about self-control? The reputation of Christ? You don't want Jesus to say on the final day, well, you claim to know me with your words, but you denied me by your lack of self-control. As we see right here in the text, look at the verses. If we don't have self-control, God's word will be slandered, verse 5. Verse 8, people will be able to say all kinds of bad things about Christians. But then positively, if we do have self-control, the good news is adorned or made attractive. In other words, you make the good news look good with your life. Hinson As a church, I do want to encourage you guys. I think we're making progress in self-control. Consider how God is helping us grow. I hear less complaining today than I did maybe a few years back. I, I hear more expressions. I hear a putting off of complaining and a putting on of thankfulness. And gratitude. And I don't think the world has necessarily gotten better, (laughs) Uh, but I hear a thankfulness to the Lord for this church, for one another, for what He's doing in your families, in your hearts, with your friends. Rather than venting all the things that are broken and going on in the world that frustrate you, I hear more and more expressions of gratitude. And I think that's in large part because of contentment in the Lord leading to self control. So keep up the good works. I also see evidence of self-control as you walk in confession and repentance of sin. Uh, Not being satisfied with where you're at spiritually, but confessing. I see this more and more. Even in the last four weeks, I have heard this. uh, People coming to me or going to brothers and sisters, confessing their sin, asking for help, that they might be resting in the gospel and walking in a purity of life as they confess uh, lust, greed, selfishness, pride. I want to encourage you because I think this comes from a desire to live a life that is consistent with the good news that we see. Well, it's not just self-control that Paul talks about. We also adorn the good news when we make progress in submission. Paul says that submission makes the gospel look beautiful. Uh, Let me just clarify a few things to set us at ease in a culture that is rightly sensitive to whenever we talk about the roles of women 
and marriage in the church and the topic of slavery. Uh, we, get, we get both in one chapter. Uh, lucky me. Um, first, slavery. Just a few words briefly. Um, slavery is never commended in the Bible. All humans are created in the image of God. This is very clear throughout the scriptures. And so it doesn't make sense for another human being to own another human being uh, who is created in God's image. Paul encouraged slaves to get their freedom. You can find that in 1 Corinthians or implied in the book of Philemon. But I think what you need to know about slavery in the Bible is this. Paul, as an apostle, wasn't as, as interested in overturning societal norms as he was as in encouraging Christians to make the gospel beautiful in the place where the Lord had put them. He was more concerned with Christians making the life beautiful, uh, making the gospel beautiful where he, they, the Lord had put them. Um, and further, just so you can better understand verses 9 and 10, I think Paul is addressing in our text was probably more akin to indentured servanthood or even minimum wage or low wage earners today. It wasn't the race-based chattel slavery that uh, is a mark on our history. Uh, second, so that's just a brief word about slavery in the Bible. I'd be happy to talk to you more if you have questions after the service. Second, submissive wives. What does it mean for wives to submit to their husbands? Well, we have to say briefly what it means and what it doesn't mean. We'll start a little bit with what it doesn't mean. Wives submitting themselves to their husbands doesn't mean submitting to physical, emotional, spiritual, or sexual abuse. It doesn't mean ever facilitating sin or even violating your conscience. Scripture is very clear that we are always to obey our conscience. Biblical submission is when a, when a wife encourages and follows good and loving leadership in a marriage. It's when a, a wife encourages and follows good and loving leadership in a marriage. It's not being passive, but actively helping and bringing all your gifts and energies and talents to bear in accomplishing a mission, a task. So I will say, wives, you know, we don't, you may not always understand a husband's ways or why he does the things that he does, uh, but we don't always understand God's ways. Uh, but when we lovingly, when wives lovingly submit themselves to their husband's will and vision, uh, you're making the gospel look attractive. Again, there's so much more we could say about this. It's like addressed in just one short line in this text. And I've got good news for you. Hinson is addressing this topic in the coming months. So in April, the Women's Bible Study is going to be thinking about this very thing. So come on Wednesdays to Women's Bible Study, women, to think about this more. And uh, God willing, Michael's going to be teaching on this topic in part uh, from Genesis 1 and 3 from the pulpit later this spring. So be looking forward to that. All right. So as we kind of address slavery and wives submitting to their husbands, I do think that submission is not just for wives and slaves, but the way he talks about submission has relevance for all of us, whether we're an employee, a child, a husband, whoever we are. And let's be honest, submitting to sinners is really hard. But the way we respond to authority, the way we respond to authority says everything that we need to know about how we respond to God's authority. In our life. So, again, wives, kids, employees, citizens of government, are we setting an example of Christ 
centered submission? Are we setting an example of Christ centered submission? We need to be aware that the children, the next generation, is taking notice how we respond to authority, to, to the authority of human beings in our life. And they're going to imitate, the next generation is going to imitate, for better or for worse, how we respond to that authority, be it at work, in the home, or political authority. But even more importantly, the way that we submit to human authority speaks to the power of the gospel to change proud, empowered, and independent people like us who are willing to admit we're not always right. We confess by the way that we submit that God didn't make a mistake when he put that spouse, boss, parent, pastor, or president in our life to submit to. God didn't make a mistake. Is that what your words and your heart is saying? Kids, you have an opportunity to make the gospel look attractive by how you respond to your parents, to pastors, to coaches, to teachers. Now, I do know, because I am one, adults make mistakes. Sometimes they are mean. But let's think of gospel teaching. Let's think about the teaching about God our Savior like a coloring book. And when you submit to authority, kids, when you don't talk back, when you humble yourself, when you show respect, it's like you're coloring in the lines and making the teaching of God our Savior look beautiful. You're bringing it to life in living color. Friends, I must say that as one of the elders of this church, I am encouraged by how you have responded to the elders' authority in this church. We are not perfect leaders. We never strike the perfect balance between uh, gentleness and rebuking in love. Uh, we are not the, the holy examples that we uh, ought to be. And yet I think that the way that you, the church, the congregation as a whole, responds to the elders' authority uh, the way that you pray for us, encourage us, even when we don't you ever get it exactly right, is a loud witness to a watching world. We want to continue to make progress in these things. We want to continue to make progress in self-control and in submission to authority. And it's going to be a community project. So how are you going to help one another this week? How are you going to confess have you been convicted by God's word this morning of a lack of self-control or a lack of submitting to authority? Are you going to come along another, alongside another brother or sister in love? Remember that God didn't merely tell us that he was good in a book. He didn't just say, this is what I'm like. But he came down in the person of his son to show us in flesh and blood what goodness is in living color. And when we follow after him, when we ask his grace and mercy to change us, we, we reflect what he's like. And it's that very teaching about Christ our Savior, the good news, that we're going to consider as our motivation for these good lives next in our second and final point. So point number two, the good news. 
Look at verse 11, where I'm going to pick things up. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I think the first word of Titus 2.11 is perhaps the most important word in the chapter. So, and it's the word for. If you're a Christian who has been confused by the relationship between grace and works, this word is for you. If you grew up Catholic, this word is for you. If you grew up in another religion that teaches you that basically you need to be good in order to be accepted by a higher, higher power and to enjoy the afterlife, this word is for you. If you grew up in a fundamentalist home, this word is for you. Finally, if you think that Jesus basically taught the golden rule, you know, be good, be kind, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, this word is for you. Uh, look back up at verse 10 again. What, what did he just say? We are to adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. I think that applies not just to slaves or employees, but, but to all of us. Because, so what is the reason that our lives, our good lives, are to adorn the gospel of God our Savior in everything? Does he say, because God is the ultimate authority, and he created you, and he tells you to be good? Does he say, because you'll be happier if you are a good person, and the world will be a better place? Does he say, because, you know, adorn the gospel with your good life because this is how you get to heaven? No. Obviously, he doesn't say any of these things. The reason we're to live, like verses 1 through 10, the reason we are to give ourselves to living good lives is because, for verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's an interesting way to motivate a church to good works, isn't it? Doesn't use fear. Doesn't scold. Doesn't talk down to them. He says, the grace of God has appeared. Just last week in Sunday school, at 9 o'clock, they're always welcome to come, uh, but we're doing Second John, and I just asked the question, as I was leading that study, what is grace? And Dan Grady said, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. I put this up here so you don't do what I did, where I didn't get that it was an acronym until like four days later when Ashley pointed it out to me. <laughs> um, so thanks, Dan, for that. These riches at Christ's expense are offered to all people without distinction. I think that's what it's saying in verse 11. So no matter your eth- ethnicity, Uh, whatever group you identify with in verses 1 through 10, salvation is offered uh, to, to all without distinction. Salvation from sin. You know, I, I will say, if you're a non-Christian here this morning, we are so glad that you have joined us. Uh, we hope that you are encouraged by your time together with us. But if you walk away from this time together thinking, you know what, I need to maybe do a better job do a better job of being self-controlled or submissive to maybe authority in my life, I will have failed 
completely, if that's your takeaway. Non-Christian friends, the good news is good because it's a message of not what we can do for God, but what he has done for us. God saves us, not in partnership with us. He saves us despite us. We don't meet God halfway. We don't clean ourselves up for him. No, it's grace alone that saves us from our sin and the eternal punishment that we all deserve in hell. Those who repent and believe in this good news of what God has done by grace and grace all the way can know the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life that we're going to consider here in a minute. Life with God, our Savior and Lord. We would love to talk to you more about this. If this sounds compelling to you, anybody really sitting here, talk to the person who you came with. I'll talk to you at the door afterwards. There's nothing that would bring us a greater privilege or joy than to talk to you about this grace that has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. We're gonna, we'd also invite you back next week. It's really clear in Titus 3. Titus 3 says, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Uh, Paul clearly teaches us that the basis for our good works is grace. But grace doesn't just give us this gift of inestimable value that we are to do nothing with. Thanks for that, God. You know, that's really handy. Now look at verse 12. Instructing us, the grace that appeared, is instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Grace is amazing, not just because it saves, but because it teaches as well. It saved a wretch like me, you know, in the great hymn. Verse 2, it taught, grace taught my heart to fear. Grace is a teacher. Anyone who would have God's grace in salvation must also have grace as a teacher. And what does grace teach us? So what's the content of the teaching that grace gives us? It teaches us that living for ourselves and the things of this world is death. It teaches us to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. This is what grace teaches us. We give our things ourselves to things like self-control and submission because grace opened our eyes to the beauty and sufficiency of Christ. The things that we used to feast on as we were running around looking for happiness and fulfillment become like gravel in our mouths. Grace opens our eyes to the way that the world really is. Without grace, we're like groping around in the darkness looking for the world to fulfill us and make us happy. But grace saves us from that very ignorance and that folly. And then it shines like a bright light, showing us the way to life. That's what grace teaches us. We see in verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace gives way to glory. Grace gives way to glory. Those who wait in grace today will know glory forever. Here in verse 13, too, you must know that the waiting is not passive. It's not like as you maybe wait for the TriMet bus or for your Uber driver checking your phone. 
Uh, No, this Greek word for waiting suggests an eagerness. This coming glory, our hope, compels us to wait like a child who is waiting for their birthday or for Christmas. They're maybe months away. Have you seen children like talk about their birthday or Christmas? Like, you know, six months before it's here, they're, they're making lists. They're talking about who they're going to invite. Do you think about this big day? Verse 13, the appearing of our, our Lord, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Do you meditate on him coming again? Are you preparing for it? Imagining what it will be like when your faith becomes sight? Did you also notice how clearly Paul just identifies Jesus as God here? I think that's really useful. Just in one verse, we see Jesus is clearly God. And seeing God himself in the person of Jesus Christ is our blessed hope. When we consider who he is and what he has done, the the beauty and the wonder of his glory, of course that would be our blessed hope. Of course that would be the the hopes and fears of all the, the years caught up in him, looking to him. You know, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that the presence of God was always mediated because it was terrifying. So it's mediated in a cloud, on a mountain, in a fire. People are falling on their faces. Uh, but when Christ appears, it will be our, our fear, our, our worries, our anxiety, our trouble that will melt away. And this day, this day of the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ is more certain than the sun will rise tomorrow. So why don't we live like it? Why don't we meditate on this coming glory, sing about it with joy? Why do we give ourselves to the, to the worry of the things of this world? Because our, our vision gets clouded, doesn't it, with the things of this world? We begin to look inward at our sin and our struggles. But let me encourage us. Consider this glory of our blessed hope that may seem so far away. And considering this glory that is to come, this joy that is to come, causes Paul actually to rewind the tape, to go from that glory to a glory that we have now. He moves from one glory to another. Look at verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. You know, the reason why our blessed hope is so certain, more certain than the sun rising tomorrow, is because God has already appeared in glory in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And we see God's glory at the cross where he gave himself for us to redeem us. God has given us everything we need to live a life of good works. He has redeemed us from our lawlessness. He has given us this blessed hope, this future of being with him. And if that weren't enough, Paul just piles on and he shows us that he has also given us a new identity together. He has made us a new people, a cleansed people. We are now included in that community that is no longer guilty or stained, but we're part of the people of God, redeemed, belonging to him, and eager 
to bring him glory in our lives. You know, it made me think of uh, the book, The Count of Monte Cristo, which I've been trying to finish for months now. Uh, Jacopo. Remember Jacopo in that novel who uh, gives himself to the Count of Monte Cristo uh, because the Count saves his life? And he does so joyfully. Well, we joyfully serve him for life because of how he has redeemed us, how he has saved us, and given us a life worth living. And Christ saved us from something more than just a physical death. He didn't just pull us out of physical danger, but he cleansed us from our sin that was bringing us down to eternal death and judgment. And now we belong to him. We are included in him. We are called Christ's body, the church. So in in these verses, we see that Paul is encouraging us to live in line with what God has done in us, for us, and to us. Those who have been redeemed by the Son live like they were bought with a price. They live as though they were truly cleansed, as if their lives are no longer their own. Now, this is, this is what Paul wants Titus to proclaim in verse 15. He's to encourage and rebuke with all authority, not because Titus is perfect, but because this news comes on the authority of God himself. Titus is to proclaim what God has done to save sinners by his grace and how God's grace instructs us to live a life of good works that prove that the good news is good. So is this good news to you? Your life will demonstrate how good you think this news is. And consider all the people sitting around you this morning. Consider those who are here because of this good news. Good news that has healed broken marriages. Shame has been covered. Abuse healed. People forgiven. Addictions under control. Lives changed. That's how good this good news is. Again, if you're a non-Christian here today, you already know this, but you are among sinners. But because of God's grace, the people who profess Christ here and who are walking in line with that, we are no longer what we once were. And because of our blessed hope, we trust that we are not what we will one day be. You know, today we've been challenged by God's word. We recognize that we fall short in many ways, whether in self-control or in submission or in many of the other good works. But not so non-Christian friends, if you look to us for hope, we will let you down. But we would invite you to look with us to our blessed hope, the longing of every heart, the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one that created us to know him, to rejoice in him. His grace is amazing, and his amazing grace is all that we need to live a new and a holy life, to live like the cleansed people that we are. So why not welcome this grace, live in this grace, 
adorn this good grace by giving yourself to good works. Henson, let's make the good news look good again. And this sermon and every Sunday is just the beginning. The question is, what will you do with what you've heard? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we marvel, Lord, that your grace would appear to people like us. A people who, even during this very service, have thought more about ourselves and the things of this world at times than considering who you are, than considering your return and considering your redemption. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. Lord, may your grace teach us, teach us as a church what it looks like to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we eagerly look forward to that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, your Son, Father, Jesus Christ. We thank you for how he gave himself for us to redeem us, to cleanse us, to call us your own. So, Lord, in belonging to you, may we live like it. Give us the power to change, to make even just a small step forward today and this week. Lord, we will need your grace. Our attempts at self-improvement, our resolutions will always fail. But, Lord, we pray that you would sustain us and teach us by your grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.